Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Here's a little snippet by one of the authors from the anthology. My name is Rex Ogle, author of Free Lunch, and I'm stoked to have contributed to Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. My essay is called Historia Sobre Mi, Stories About Me, and what I really don't have time for is making time for self-care, but I'm learning to make time, and so should you. Amor Towles is the author of The Lincoln Highway. He's the, also the author of the New York Times bestsellers, Rules of Civility, which I adored, and A Gentleman in Moscow. The two novels have collectively sold more than 4 million copies and have been translated into more than 30 languages. Towles lives in Manhattan with his wife and two children. Welcome, Amor. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss the Lincoln Highway and all of your work and everything else. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks for having me. I have to tell you that I read The Rules of Civility with my book club years ago when it first came out, and still it remains one of my 
favorite book. So good. So amazing. And then I actually, I went and saw you speak somewhere related to that book ages ago. This is like embarrassing now that I'm like stalking you. But anyway, I was such a huge super fan and now have like been following along with you. So I'm delighted to get to talk to you about this book. Great. Terrific. Yes. Okay. The Lincoln Highway. Would you mind just telling listeners a little more about what it's about and how you came up with the idea for this book? The, the Lincoln Highway, sort of the background is that before our story begins, as it were, an honorable young Nebraskan goes to the county fair with his little brother. A bully picks a fight with him at the fair. He punches the bully. The bully falls back, hits his head, and dies. As a result, Emmett, our hero, is sentenced to 18 months in a juvenile work farm. The book opens on the day that Emmett has been released, and the warden is driving him home to Nebraska. In the meantime, Emmett's mother is long gone, but in the meantime, while he was away, his father has passed away, and the family farm has gone into foreclosure. And the warden is saying to Emmett that he's an honorable young man, that uh, what happened at the fair was a freak accident, that he has paid his debt, to society. So what he he really should do is be prepared to start his life anew. Emmett says that's exactly what his intention is to do. He's going to pick up his younger brother, get in his car and head west uh, to, to start his adulthood, as it were. But when the warden drives away, it turns out the two young friends from the work farm have hidden themselves in the trunk of the warden's car, and they have a very different vision for Emmett's future. And so as a result, instead of piling in the car and heading west, uh, Emmett, his little brother, and his two friends end up heading east on the Lincoln Highway towards New York City with everything going awry. So this is kind of uh, the way the story begins, which and it's in whole story only lasts 10 days, and it takes place in June of 1954. I have to say, when I first heard about the story, I wasn't imagining the inmates. I wasn't thinking that one of them was going to be like a trust fund kid from the Upper East Side, which is sort of where I am right now, you know, and one, you know, Dutchess County and all of this stuff. Like it just, I was surprised by your, the fall from grace and how they got there and how that sort of reverberates in a lot of your stories, people sure. who've come from wealth or who are going, you know, falling from their stations, even the the dad himself, right? People from boarding school get themselves into trouble all the time. <laughs> where, now, where, where are you? Where is this? Where are you right now? I'm in New York City, but actually like three feet away. My son is here from boarding school okay. right now. So okay, yeah. well, tell, me, tell me to keep out of trouble. I know. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't I, I've spent I, I don't go to the Hamptons, uh, but certainly there are young people in the Hamptons getting themselves into trouble, too. So, you know, I think if you looked at a, you know, a juvenile program, it may be a mix. And just as if you went to a rehab program, it may be a mix of kids from a very different walks of life. And so that, yes, one of the things that happens in this story is three kids who might never have come to know each other in the course of a normal life. The mistakes that each of the three have made has put them in a position where they suddenly meet each other, come to know each other, become friends, and, and their fates become a little bit more intertwined. Yes. It is always so random, the people you end up being crossing your paths with in different <laughs> arenas, not necessarily in the trunk of a car, but you know, <laughs> I was also really interested in how Emmett sort of decided to become a carpenter's apprentice and that he couldn't deal with 
how out of control it was to be a farmer, right? And you had to be so dependent on the weather and all these things. And then he decided to apprentice to earn extra money with a carpenter. And the way he conceptualized both those professions, that he didn't have to worry. All the things that had plagued his father and his family. Like, if you are a carpenter, you're always going to have work. Like, you don't have to worry. So I just thought for someone from such a young age, that was a very interesting sort of insight. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, I suppose the bigger context in what you're describing is is really the, the book is about three 18-year-old boys, roughly a 19-year-old young woman. There's an eight-year-old, too, who plays a critical part of the story. But if you think about those four figures who are all around 18, 19, 20 years old, um, that's a point in your life or in our lives that is kind of universally. It's a sort of an interesting moment because if you think about our lives between zero and 16, that's a period where we are receiving all kinds of input, instruction, counsel in from our parents, from school, from our church, from the community around us, whatever shared values our community has. All of them are, are constantly you know, speaking to young people before the age of 16, providing them advice, guidance, telling them stories in one form or another. And all this is really to shape the young individual and to define, help define uh, who they are and how they view right and wrong, where they are, where they draw their lines, what they think is possible for themselves, what they think is essential to do. You know, all these things are being passed to us. But you get to around 17, 18, 19, and, and suddenly the the compass spins, as it were, and, and those suddenly we realize as young 17, 18, 19-year-olds, wait, you know, I, don't, I, can, I can make my own decisions about who I am, about what I want to do with my life, about what is right and wrong. And when we make that transition, either consciously or unconsciously, both happen, we take all those inputs from our youth and we amplify some and we discard others, you know, and, and there are kids who very self-consciously want to be like their father. Let's say a son wants to be like father. There are kids who very self-consciously reject their father's choices. Even if their father's an honorable person, they then have to say, you know, I, the life that my father has chosen is, is alien to me, anathema to me. And I, you know, I would no sooner do X than, you know, than jump off a cliff. And so, so you can have both sort of moments occur. And, and yes, the, all three of the young men in this case, and, and, and Sally, the young woman too, they are at that moment in their lives, and they are very conscious of the lives that their parents lead, and they have inherited both problems and wisdom from their parents to varying degrees, and they are defining their lives in contrast in, in some cases. And so, yes, for Emmett, you know, being raised in a farm by a father who wasn't a natural farmer and seeing the ongoing struggles that that has created for him and that they've had to share as a family – it's very natural for him to be like, no, this is not for me, you know? And, and so, you know, but as I say, that's just sort of a part of the bigger mosaic of individual decision-making at that point. And the story investigates many different kinds of decisions that the, the young characters are making in a similar type of context. Yes. This is how I feel about going into finance, by the way. <laughs> like, I, I would rather be, I would rather be nailing you know, oh, actually, because your parent, you, you have parents. I have, I have my, I have a family in finance, so I'm like, you know, let me just read books all day. Thank you very much. 
<laughs> didn't you have a background in finance or did I make that up? Didn't you start out that way? Well, I spent 20 years in the investment business, yes. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. And I saw pictures, by the way, on your Instagram of the Lincoln Highway, and I didn't realize how, well, you know, the way it was paved, like even today, it still has bricks and all of that. Like that was such a visually arresting image. Is that really, that's, do you know what I'm talking about or not? <laughs> no, of course. Uh, the, the Lincoln Highway, which the book draws its the name from, is was, is the first highway that crossed America. So in the early 20th century, as the car was was gaining in popularity across the country, the vast majority of roads in the United States were, first of all, were unpaved. And so the dirt roads, which were okay for horse horses in rain, proved to be more difficult for cars. So cars would have difficulty navigating these roads if they got to, became muddy, for instance. But in addition, the roads weren't really designed for long distance travel. They were designed to get you from the farm into a town or, you know, from the train depot to your house. And, you know, that's what roads were for. So they spiderwebbed out from townships and and municipalities. What they weren't weren't really designed to do was to go from, say, Boston to Salt Lake City. You know, there was nobody was doing that. And there was no the only if you wanted to go from Boston to Salt Lake City, you took a train and and you certainly didn't take a carriage. So or a car. So a, an American entrepreneur by the name of Carl Fisher, who believed that Americans, now that they had cars, would want to see their country and should see their country, decided that he would build a paved road that crossed the country from you know, the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean, specifically from Times Square to San Francisco. At the time, the federal government wasn't involved in road making at all. And so it ended up being a private venture. He raised money from the public and barnstormed to raise money. And eventually he raised enough money, you know, whatever in today's terms, millions of dollars, and the road was built. Now, the reason I go through all this is because it's not like they had one crew who started in Times Square and paved the roads slowly across the nation 300 miles, 3,000 miles later. But of course they did is they is his notion was we're going to raise money all across the country and the individual counties in which the road is going to cut through will be a part of, you know, they'll take over their zone, you know, and, and each so, so simultaneously groups would be building the road all across the country, county by county for, you know, once it was once the lawn, the line was drawn of where it was going to be now. So that meant that to some degree, the 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 roads, how they were made did differ from place to place. And in Omaha, Nebraska, there is a stretch which has, you know, which has not been tinkered with for 100 years, really. And that, yes, a photograph is on my, I just posted on my Instagram account recently. That is a bricked, a bricked segment. Now, that's, that's not a coincidence. It's because, and it's a red brick road. It's not a yellow brick road, but it's not a coincidence because you actually go not far from there to, for instance, Aurora, Nebraska, which is right in the middle of Nebraska. There were brickworks in those counties. And so, you know, they didn't have cobblestones, they had bricks. And it was a very easy thing to, you know, sort of the notion of rural use bricks. If you go to Aurora, Nebraska today, the downtown area around the town hall, all the streets are brick, you know, in that specific, you know, area. So it's not as if the Lincoln Highway was brick from the beginning to end. It's just that in that segment, it was brick. And, and for whatever reason, that little segment has not been touched for a hundred years. So it is kind of a, it's a fun sort of little window on how, on what that segment of road looked like. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things. And I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help and I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. Oh, oh my gosh. I love that. I just wanted to read this one part about Emmett and when he finds something special from his father tucked away in the car and he, it was, a, it's about books themselves. So I just wanted to read this thing about how he doesn't approve or his dad had never approved of ripping out books. And yet here's a page. He said, his father made painfully clear that night to deface the pages of a book was to adopt the manner of a Visigoth. It was to strike a blow against the most sacred and noble of man's achievements, the ability to set down his finest ideas and sentiments so that they might be shared through the ages. For his father to tear a page from any book was a sacrilege. What was even more shocking was that the page was torn from Ralph Waldo Emerson's essays, that book which his father held in greater esteem than any other. So is this something you share? Do you have a feeling about ripping pages out of books? Like, was this a thing in your family too? Well, you know, my books are an invention. So no, so they are not expressions of my, of my family behavior. I was just wondering if that stemmed from anywhere. That that was my um, one personal question. Emmett, <laughs> in that story, Emmett got in trouble for defacing a book and was sent home by the principal in essence and his father was furious. That did not happen to me. <laughs> so, but you know, of course, I think we all, most of us, witness some version of that at some point in our lives. So I think it's probably a pretty universal situation where in elementary school, some kid starts drawing in the books and, and, you know, a particularly traditional teacher will be furious and say, you know, what are you doing? You know, you can't be drawing in the books, you know, and uh, not allowed. So, you know, somewhere along the way, somebody expresses to us the, the elevated importance of books and taking care of books and, and showing, you know, sharing the respect of whether it's a librarian or a parent, or as I say, a, you know, a teacher. And so, and no, that was not a family thing, but, but I, I do think it's probably... <laughs> 
a universal moment. But yes, the main, I, I liked sort of the contrast there that the father wants to, you know, he's, since the farm's in foreclosure, he doesn't have much to leave his son. And uh, so, you know, he leaves him advice and he leaves him advice from his hero, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the, the great American middle of the 19th century reverend and essayist and philosopher. That's what he leaves him, you know, and 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 as, as Emmett says, you know, here's a guy, he both loved Emerson, prized the book, hated the defacing of books, and yet tore out this, you know, passage, you know, before he died to give a son. And, and therefore, it kind of has sort of the weight of all of these things behind it. You know, it's, it's something that you should take all the more seriously for the fact that it, that for his father to do it, you know, it was, it was contrary even to his own normal, you know, rules. It must be an important passage. And, <laughs> and you know, of course, in the way of books, it, it, Emmett's ability to understand that passage at that point in the story is very different than his ability to understand that passage at the end of the story. And, you know, and that, well, I'll leave that for others to figure out on their own. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I also, I watched the video you posted somewhere, I saw somewhere about your very different books. And obviously all three have been quite different in terms of form and character and everything. And you go into why, why did some take place over multiple decades, whereas some take place over 10 days or in a summer or whatever, and even different time periods and types of people. And it sounded like you are just, it's like you're, you're like a master craftsman who has to try a new challenge each time, right? That's the way it's like you wanted to hone your craft by trying different things. So tell me about that and why you see it working so well to sort of jump time periods or format or structure and, and what your plans are from here. All right. Now, for, first of all, I don't, think of myself as a master craftsman, but I do think of myself as a craftsperson or whatever you want to put it. But, you know, different writers are trying to achieve different things in their writing and and sometimes trying to achieve different things in different books. And, but yes, as a novelist, I am very interested in how elements of craft can be used to achieve different types of narratives and different types of outcomes artistically and philosophically. So when you know, from my standpoint, when you shift a story for, you know, a decade and you shift the focus from, you know, one age group to another and you shift the center focus of the story from, you know, a happy event to a tragic event or whatever these little elements are that, that distinguish one from story from another. For me, part of the thing that's interesting about that as a challenge is that is that virtually that every element of craft should change along with those simple facts. You know, and so meaning that, you know, to tell these two different stories, one that say, and let's say it's, you know, like this story in the mid fifties, if this story were, you know, 13 years later, 15, 14 years later, it was 1968. And you still had an 18 year old, what a radically different tone and poetics you would need to bring to bear to tell that story. Because, you know, life for an 18 year old in America in 1968, you've got the Vietnam war, you've got, you're on the verge of Woodstock, you've got rock and roll is is booming. You've got, you know, a counterculture, you've got free love movement in San Francisco, you know, you've got a lot of going on. And, you know, which is not happening in 1954, you know, not even a generation before, half a generation before, it's a completely different landscape. And so in tackling a story about an 18-year-old in either one of those moments in time, as I say, the, the vocabulary would clearly be different. But so would the semantics, and so would the the imagery, and so would how the poetics the poetics work, and the tone of the dialogue would be different. How 
settings were described would be different. The pace of the book might be different. Certainly the themes, the center are going to be different. And, and that's going to reverberate back through how the language is chosen and, and formed. So yes, as a writer, what I think is interesting is when you turn that dial, how you reinvent all these elements of craft, your dialogue, your setting, your characterization, your communication of ideas, your metaphors and allegories and illusions and similes and all these various elements of poetics. How do you retool them for this story of, of these people at this time? And that's you know part of the fun for me and hopefully fun for the reader. So that you know if, if someone's a fan of a gentleman Moscow rules of civility, I think they will find that the Lincoln Highway is clearly my book. They will recognize it as my work, but they will also see that quite quickly that artistically speaking, it's very different than the other two, just as they were different from each other. And that that, you know, hopefully is something that they'll enjoy that experience of difference. Interesting. So what's your next book going to be? Different. <laughs> is that, that's it? No more? It. No more that's details? Oh, yeah. Okay. What made you go from the world of finance to writing? And then now that you're here, what advice would you have for aspiring authors? Well, I've been writing since I was a kid. So I wrote fiction in elementary school, okay. and high school, and college and graduate school. So really, that's the thing I've been doing all my life. And my childhood friends, what they find surprising is that I was in the investment business for 20 years. You know, Got that's it. what shocks them. You know? But so, you know, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a great font for advice, you know, source for, for advice. But, you know, for me, for me, what worked for me was basically read, write, repeat. You know, so from the time I was in first grade, I, I would read something and if it grabbed me, I'd read more of it. And then I would probably start writing in some fashion, drawing from what I just read as an experiment or as thievery or whatever you want to call it. And that, and that just sort of, that began around the time I was in first grade and continued right through to today. I'm constantly reading books with the interest, not only of enjoying them, but of understanding how they work. And uh, you know, how an author approaches their craft, how they realize their the intrinsic mission of their books, and and that inevitably influences me, you know, and and shapes kind of how I might. It's one thing I get to carry into the next project is 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 how that person did that. I'm not, I'm not copying people. I mean, I make it sound like that, but I'm 57, so I'm talking about after decades of reading, you know, you've accumulated a, a large vocabulary of how different styles of storytelling, different approaches to storytelling. And that, that helps me when I set out and invent an idea and I have to start thinking about how do I tell this? I can draw on this sort of longstanding awareness and, uh, of, of different types of storytelling that might serve the purposes of this tale. Very interesting. Well, I feel like one of the things that you do particularly well is developing your characters and how real they become and how quickly you're able to introduce us to them. Like we feel like you get to know them very quickly with just a few details or a few sentences that they say, you you know, within a page or two, like I totally got to know Duchess, right? Like that's who that person is. I know the backstory, he's funny, like all the things like it's just, it's very impressive because sometimes it takes a while to get to know people. I don't know. So I feel like that's one of the most vivid things in your writing. But well, I appreciate you saying that, but uh, I, I'm glad that's your experience, but because that's certainly the intention. I think that one of the elements of the novel that are, are most important and they're most unique or an element, which is, the mo is, is among the most important and is the most unique is what you're describing, which is that 
the novel is an art form in which we can take the perspective of a different human being, you know, where we suddenly can see the world through their eyes. We can feel in, in the best of novels, very close to their experience. We feel emotionally in tune with them. So if they have a setback, we're upset. If they have a victory, we're excited. You know, if something funny happens to them, we laugh. If something tragic happens to them, we cry. You know, there's a real potential bonding between a reader and central characters. And when that happens, it's a beautiful thing, I think, and, and make, can make a story much more powerful. So I do think that for young writers, this should be one of the things that they strive to gain a command of, which is how do you invent a, a personality, a three-dimensional individual, idiosyncratic, you know, is unique, and yet the reader gets access very quickly to an understanding of who they are. Now, we part of a pleasure of a novel is also is getting a deeper and deeper understanding of who they are and watching how they change. So, you know, it's not like you need to know everything. Right. But as you say, you know, you 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 want to know enough about them that that you kind of have a sense of, oh yeah, okay, I, 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 know, I can feel who this person is. I know who this person is. And now I'm going to join them in this discovery and I'm going to get to know them better along the way, much in the way that we do in life. You know, if, if particularly when we hit it off with somebody, you know, you, you spend 40 minutes at a party talking to somebody who's a natural fit for you. And it's just like, it's, it's very exciting. You, you feel like, I, I feel like, you feel like I've known this person their whole lives and you realize there's many things you still need to know about them. And, you know, and they are changing. But yet you have this strong sense of affinity and, and you're, I think in, in writing, you're trying to create that similar version of that experience, you know, but you just, the, the, the challenge is that you have to make that, an, that, that connection, that aspect of affinity for all kinds of readers at the same time. You know, yeah. I can't sort of just make one in a thousand people like my main character, you know I mean? <laughs> it does have to be a broader, ideally a broader scope than that. It's really like magic that it ever works, really. I mean, when you think about it. <laughs> it, is, it is. It's very much like magic. <laughs> anyway. Well, Imwar, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all the hours of reading mm -hmm. pleasure you've given me on your... <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Zoo. Thanks for having so me. So thanks so much. All right. Thank take you. care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.